So I want to start by telling you uh, two brief stories from some of my own experiences in communities of faith over the, the decades. The first was um, almost 20 years ago. I was a 20-something, early 20-something young adult um, helping chaperone a group of high school students um, that I worked with at our church uh, to this like youth conference in England. Um, it was a really powerful trip filled with lots of fun bonding experiences, amazing musical worship, smart, engaging teachings. But then there came this night um, that the speakers wanted to talk about physical healing and pray for people to be healed. And that made me feel a little uneasy. It wasn't that I absolutely like didn't believe it could, in theory, happen. Um, I'd heard lots of stories at this point from people who I considered trustworthy about God healing people in these like amazing supernatural ways. I'd even seen some things myself on occasion that seemed pretty encouraging. But I hadn't witnessed a lot that I would confidently call like straight up miraculous. And I'd certainly had my share of praying for people and not seeing them experience any obvious change. So I could manage my own expectations, but here I was, you know, with this group of students. I was nervous for them about how this was going to go. The speaker told some amazing stories about people he had seen miraculously healed, and then he said we were going to practice praying for one another right then. And he had all the kids who had some sort of physical issue that they'd like to see God bring healing to raise their hands. And all of the kids surrounding those people were instructed to lay hands on them and, and pray. And while there were certainly a lot of headaches, I'm sure, that got prayed for that day, lots of colds, um, there was a girl in our group, I'm going to call Rachel, with a more serious condition. She had chronic, severe asthma, so severe that she had to bring a machine with her on the trip and do breathing treatments every night before bed. And Rachel also carried a little one of those breath monitors with her at all times, and it would somehow like measure the strength of her lungs when she blew into it. Uh, and so she raised her hand for prayer. And all the kids around her laid their hands on her, and they started to invite the Holy Spirit to come and touch her body. And after a bit of time, it became apparent that something significant seemed to be happening with this young woman. She said she felt this weight on her. She didn't couldn't like stand up under. So soon she was lying down on the floor. And then she said she could feel something happening in her body, this strange warmth overcoming her chest. She said it was particularly intense when there was this one other young woman who was very new to this whole Jesus thing. Um, and when that girl would put her hand on this young woman's chest and pray for her, it had this like special heat. And the praying girl also felt this weird warmth in her hand as she prayed. And this went on for a while, the students praying with more and more encouragement for increased healing for Rachel, and Rachel confirming she believed she was experiencing real healing. And before long, she was like giddy with laughter, jubilant that she had been healed, and she pulls out her breath monitor and blows in it, and the numbers for her are off the charts. They were in the normal range, which she had never experienced before. The kids were all ecstatic, of course. Some of them prayed and put faith in Jesus for the first time. It was like this big high moment. 
And when Rachel returned home and she told her parents, they, of course, were a little like, oh, really? Okay. They took her to the doctors only to have them confirm what they couldn't explain, that after taking this trip to England, Rachel seemed to no longer suffer from asthma. Story number one. Story number two involves a middle-aged woman in a congregation I was serving at um, probably about 10 years later who found herself suffering greatly from back pain. She was actually a surgeon, and so it was a big deal that her back pain was becoming um, very difficult to manage. It was hard for her to stand for any length of time, which when you're a surgeon is a problem. Um, it had come on acutely and was impeding her ability to function. So after a few days, the pain was only growing more and more and more intense, which required her to seek medical help. And an MRI revealed that she had a herniated disc, and the proposed treatment was surgery. Friends from the church, myself included, all laid hands on her repeatedly and prayed for relief. But the pain persisted. So our community walked through the experience with this woman and her family of preparing for and going through back surgery. Folks brought meals when the family needed them. They, they prayed for relief from fear and anxiety. They visited the woman after her surgery when she was recovering at home, bringing gifts, food, listening ears, helping out with the kids. And slowly but surely, Recovery took place. Function was in good part restored. Pain managed. And the woman in question was cared for by her friends and community of faith all along the way. So my question to you based on these two stories is, which of these stories is a story of healing? Which of them is a story that demonstrates God's healing power ministered to someone in need through a community, a spiritual community? The answer, of course, is both, right? Both stories tell us about someone experiencing the healing touch of God in the context of spiritual community. However, what's interesting is how differently we can tend to regard these stories, okay? I came to this, like, active personal faith in a vineyard church in college, and I was amazed to be in the kind of community where people actually believed that God could do, still does do, miraculous stuff of supernatural healing. Like, it's a big thing in the vineyard. Um, and as I shared, I have had, on rare occasion, my own experiences where it seemed like perhaps something miraculous did take place. But I've also had lots and lots of other experiences that weren't like that. And where does the second story fit in a framework that defines healing as this supernatural dramatic event, right? The woman with back pain did receive prayer, like just as the young woman did. I think they were prayed for with pretty much the same technique. And yet there was no divine drama in her story, right? At least not on the surface. So does that mean God wasn't present in her healing? I don't believe that. Clearly, the woman did receive healing, but healing was a broader experience than having her symptoms instantaneously relieved. It was a process, which even in the midst of walking through physical pain, brought her relational, spiritual, and emotional wholeness. 
And I believe that was a gift from the divine. So this Lent, we're in the middle of this series that I'm calling Vulnerable Together, in which we're reflecting on the reality of our own human vulnerability. As I shared a couple weeks ago, the word vulnerable comes from the word wound. To be vulnerable means to be subject to wounding, to have the capacity for injury. Perhaps that's like the most true thing we can say about the human condition, that it is vulnerable. And none of us like to feel it, right? It doesn't feel good to be wounded. It doesn't feel good to see others wounded. We long for wellness. We long to fix what's broken. And that impacts how we think about this whole concept of healing, what it involves, what it does. And I want to acknowledge, even in this room, when we talk about the subject of healing, we're likely going to have folks coming from a number of different places. So some of you may have been in churches like the one I described, where people pray and lay hands on and, and believe they see miraculous cure, supernatural relief. Some of us might think, you know, I, I have been in churches like that, and I think there's something really to that. But I've also been traumatized in those charismatic evangelical settings that pray for healing when someone prayed to have my gender identity or my sexual orientation healed. That's real, too. I know those stories are in our community. Others of us might feel skeptical about supernatural healing altogether, skeptical of the story I told, and I don't blame you for the record. Perhaps we're more accustomed to looking at things from our medical, scientific point of view. We don't see the evidence. And then there are folks in our community who are living with chronic illness, disability, or are close to a family member or friend who is. Some of these limitations are public and obvious. Many others aren't as outwardly visible. But they all have an impact on our lives. They all prompt the question for people of Jesus-centered faith, what does it even mean to experience the healing presence of Jesus. Well, in seminary, I had the opportunity to take a class on spiritual issues pertaining to chronic illness and disability. And one distinction I found very helpful there in much of the work done by theologians and pastors who study this topic is the distinction between healing and cure. There's a difference between healing and cure. And if you're the type who appreciates being able to fill in the blanks, on, that's what the handouts are for. You don't have to use them, but if you want to, you can grab one. There's pens in the back. And here is our first kind of fill in the blank. Cure, they say, is a recovery of function or elimination of physical symptoms. Cure is a recovery of function or elimination of physical symptoms. However, healing is a broader concept. It deals with the whole person, not just the affected part of the person, right? Healing deals not just with the physical, but with the emotional, relational, mental, and spiritual state of a person. The emotional, relational, mental, and spiritual state of a person. Healing can, it often does, include cure whether it's through medical means or supernatural ones. But what about the person who experiences no cure? 
Is God's healing not present in their life? A broader view of healing recognizes that as positive a thing as alleviating symptoms often is, there is more involved than that in the ministry of healing. John Nade is a vicar, a priest in the Church of England. He's the senior leader of his congregation, the Church of the Good Shepherd, married to his wife, Belinda. Two are parents to a son named Samuel. And John Nade is also one of the only clergy within the Church of England to use a wheelchair full-time. When speaking at a conference in 2010, he shared the following. I think there's another picture you can go ahead and put up of him. Those of you with a disability know the experience of having people ask you, how long have you been suffering this disability? My usual response for those people is, I don't suffer from my disability. Rather, I suffer people like yourself. This funny but biting response highlights a reality that Nade, as well as many other people living with disability, understand that their experience of having a disability is not merely physical. It's also social. And often it's the social challenges, rather than the physical limitations, that people living with illness or disability experience as the most difficult. Nade and others like him have spent years literally being looked down on, often treated as children, and excluded from meaningful participation in community life. Unfortunately, the discomfort and perceptions that surround people living with illness and disability are deeply culturally embedded, sometimes painful to acknowledge. When you think about it, even the term disabled is demeaning, right? It emphasizes a lack of one certain ability rather than recognizing that the person in question has a variety of abilities. To say someone is disabled or handicapped means to reduce their entire identity to their limitation. For this reason, many disability advocates prefer to use terms such as persons with disabilities, other abled, differently abled, to remind the broader culture that all of us are people with our own strengths, abilities, and dignity. The issue of social barriers creating a disabling experience isn't new. And that brings us to the passage we're going to look at this morning. In biblical times, this was a very relevant issue. Social stigma was related to religious practices that often required that a person with a disability must be excluded from the life and practice of faith. Arguably, the, the condition that demonstrated this social stigma the most was that of leprosy. So to understand what made the stigma of leprosy so strong, we got to understand a little bit about religious life in ancient Israel. So we're going to play a little imagination game. Bear with me here. Imagine for a moment that you are an ancient Hebrew man or woman living in an encampment with the rest of your nation. Your people have been liberated from slavery. You've left Egypt. You're now en route to your promised land. But here you are, camped for years, nomads in the desert, as you travel and wait for God to lead you into your destiny. And in the meantime, your entire culture is shaped by the laws and regulations Moses has given you on Mount Sinai to live by. And that's a good thing. 
It's how you're coming into relationship as a people. You're forming this corporate identity, and much of this corporate identity revolves around your absorbance of the precious Torah you have been given. However, a number of these laws have to do with restrictions of purity and fitness to participate in corporate life. They're intended to keep people safe and make clear what the identity of this unique group is. But the effect of them is that they do establish a system by which people are understood to be at any given time clean or unclean. To be clean means you can live in the camp. You can be with people. You can participate in corporate worship. However, to be unclean means you need to be removed for a period from society, living outside the camp until your state of uncleanness has expired. Now, the reason someone's deemed unclean needs to be isolated is that the very state of being unclean is itself highly contagious. So if a person who's ceremonially unclean comes into contact with a person who's ceremonially clean, that clean person also will become unclean. Sometimes that person can make others unclean who can make others unclean. So contact with persons who are unclean has to be avoided. Folks are deemed unclean for a variety of reasons. Some of them are sinful behaviors. Some of them are due to contact with various animals or corpses. Eating certain foods can make you unclean. And some are purely biological. A woman's monthly period, or for a woman or a man, the appearance of any kind of skin condition will cause one to be unclean for as long as that persists. Now, there are rituals for re-entry into the community after your period of being unclean. For skin conditions, once your outbreak has resolved, you need to be inspected by a priest who can confirm that the condition is cured and pronounce you ceremonially clean. However, if you suffer from a skin condition for which there is no known cure, you will have to live on the margins indefinitely. And leprosy is such a disease. If you contract leprosy, you will have to spend the rest of your life outside the camp. Your body will deteriorate. At first, you will see lesions appear on your skin, followed by nerve damage and loss of the sensation in your hands and your feet, which causes them to become easily injured. In addition to this physical suffering, you need to be separated from your friends, your family, your children. If you ever come in close proximity of other people, you will need to cover your mouth and then yell out, unclean, unclean, to everyone in your midst so they can make sure to stay away and not be contaminated by you. And that's how you will live the rest of your life until your condition deteriorates to the point that it eventually kills you. As you can imagine, to contract leprosy in ancient Israel was akin to immediate social death. By Jesus' time, centuries later, people living with leprosy were literally called the walking dead. And it's in this world that Jesus finds himself when he encounters a man living with leprosy in the passage we're going to look at today. 
So look with me to the first chapter of Mark, starting with verse 40. Now a leper came to him and fell to his knees, asking for help. If you are willing, you can make me clean, he said. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be clean. The leprosy left him at once, and he was clean. Immediately, Jesus sent the man away with a very strong warning. He told him, see that you do not say anything to anyone, but go, show yourself to a priest and bring the offering that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. But as the man went out, he began to announce it publicly and spread the story widely so that Jesus was no longer able to enter any town openly, but stayed outside in remote places. Still, they kept coming to him from everywhere. So this is a short story, but I think it's really interesting if we look beneath the surface because we see Jesus heal this man with leprosy in multiple ways. On the one hand, it's easy to focus on the supernatural element. We see the miraculous cure. We may be amazed. We should be. But by focusing on the eradication of the disease alone, we might miss something else that's also very important. This story is not just about the fact that Jesus cured the man with leprosy. It's also about how and why he did it. It's also about how and why he did it. The man with leprosy was unique in his approach. He gave Jesus a choice. He did not simply request a healing. He knew that for him to even be in town where Jesus was amongst the community and the people gathering near Jesus, that that was forbidden. He also knew that physical contact with Jesus would make Jesus ceremonially unclean. So the man beseeches him. He bows before him, begs him, but he acknowledges the risk to Jesus by giving him a choice. If you are willing, you can make me clean. What must Jesus have been thinking in that moment? He was an observant Jew. He knew his Torah backwards and forwards. He was aware of the social taboo around this man, the danger to himself of being contaminated by contact with him. So what was going in his mind? Was he nervous? Frustrated by this stranger's gall? The text says he was moved with compassion. Other translations say it differently. They say Jesus was indignant. One translation says angry. It's a bit confusing. The actual image in the original Greek is of Jesus being moved so deeply he feels it in his bowels. That's the word they use. Grabbed in the bowels. It's as if a mix of compassion and righteous anger from deep within him overcomes him in his gut. And he's moved to respond. And this is where Jesus does the most remarkable thing, which would have been completely shocking to everyone around him. He reaches out his hand and he touches the man with leprosy in front of him. There are other healings that Jesus does that are hands off, right? Sometimes he merely like speaks a word and somebody miles away is healed. He totally could have done that here, right? He did not need to touch him, but he chose to stretch out his hand 
and make himself ritually unclean. Why? Why do that? Why take that risk? I don't think Jesus is being careless. I think he's being intentional. This is a man who probably hasn't been touched by another human being in years, maybe decades. He has been kept at arm's length for as long as he has been unclean. And in a moment, Jesus breaks the invisible barrier that surrounds him, this wall of absent space that is like his cage of isolation. And with his own hands, he tenderly touches him. And the miracle of Jesus in that moment is twofold. Firstly, it is purely a miracle that when Jesus touches the man, his incurable condition is cured. The lesions on his skin vanish. But more than skin has been healed in that moment. A person has been healed. Not only is this man relieved of his physical discomfort, but his very personhood has been restored. No longer is he the walking dead. What was dead has been resurrected. He's been given an opportunity to relate to others, to touch them, to be touched again. I think Jesus looked in this man's eyes, heard his voice, and understood that what tortured the man wasn't at its core the condition of his skin. Yes, the skin condition was likely painful, distressing at times, but what tortured this man, what drove him to Jesus, was isolation. It was the isolation. And so Jesus reached out, put his hands on this man's body to free him from his isolation. That desire trumped his need to keep himself ritually clean. He touched the man knowing that in the eyes of others he was taking on this man's unclean state. But by doing so, he was making the man holistically clean, restoring him to life in the community. Now, he gave him two instructions. First, Jesus instructed the formerly leprous man that he needed to go to the priest and show himself to him. He knew this was the religious procedure for restoration. Only the priests could officially pronounce someone ritually clean and ready to reenter society. He also knew that the priests confronted with the evidence that this man with leprosy had now been miraculously cured they would be recognized, forced to recognize Jesus had genuine supernatural power. But Jesus also asked something else of the man. He asks him not to tell others, besides the priests, what's happened to him. Some scholars think that Jesus is doing this in an attempt to try to like keep his status as Messiah on the DL. He's not really ready for everyone to you know, kind of know who he is. He, do, he knows their expectations aren't going to match what he's here to do. Others think that he knows that if it becomes public that he has touched a man with leprosy, he too will be banished to the outskirts of society for being ritually unclean. Whatever Jesus' intention, his instruction is one the man can't heed. Likely his sheer enthusiasm to be reintroduced into social life compels him to spread the word. And whether it was because of the size of the crowds Jesus was attracting or how people viewed his ceremonial status, the effect is the same. Jesus finds himself, by the end of the story, as the one unable to go into towns. 
and villages in his area. He's taken the place out on the margins, while the man who used to be there can return home. Interesting, right? This same Jesus would take great heat from some of the religious people of his day at his perceived lack of respect for ceremonial law. This same Jesus would later speak the following warning to these folks, saying, Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. You see, Jesus understood that in a quest to stay religiously pure, many of the cultural leaders of his day had missed the mark by neglecting the personhood of others. They reduced people to their unclean conditions, justifying driving them to the margins of society. But friends, this is not just about what a group of Pharisees was doing in Jesus' day. How different is that reduction of a person's identity to a single characteristic? How different is that from what many cultural leaders in our own time like to do, even those who call themselves Christian? How different is it than those who lock the doors to immigrants fleeing violence? How different is it from those who desecrate sanctuaries of worship with warfare, justifying the slaughter because these houses of worship are filled with Muslims or Jews or Christians of color. But this is not the divine heart. Jesus came not only to make clean that which was unclean, but to demonstrate that all belong in the community of God. All are worthy of receiving holistic healing. John Nade, the vicar who uses a wheelchair, wrote the following in his essay on an experience, on an experience of living with disability. And this is a quote I'm gonna read at length. As a 38-year-old man who uses a wheelchair and is approaching middle age, I find the concept of being not disabled quite intriguing. Many friends and colleagues tell me about the benefits of not being disabled, yet I've never felt the need or the desire to be healed or to become non-disabled. I appreciate that some people who become disabled through ill health, accident, or some degenerative condition may wish to be as they were before. Yet many disabled people say the biggest issue they have is not the impairment itself, but rather the way people respond to it. He continues, many people tell me that without my disability, I would be free from pain and discrimination and be able to do so much more. Similarly, I've asked the female participants in disability awareness training if they would prefer to be men so as to be spared the pain of menstruation and childbirth and the discrimination against them as women. And they tell me very clearly, no. I would not want to be a man. The fact of being a woman is part of who they are. While there's an assumption that disabled people would rather not be disabled, I and other disabled people would say that disability is part of our identity. As a woman, John's point resonates with me. 
I've spent much of my life caught between multiple understandings about what my gender means. On the one hand, I was told by my family and throughout school as a young girl, you can do anything. Girls can be whatever they want to be. And as an adult, it has been more complicated than that. I have found, right? Cheers to that, right? <laughs> I have found myself butting against systems in the greater American church or my seminary that were not created for a person like me, a woman, a mother of small children training to develop as a senior pastor, eventual church founder. I've had to sit across from a table from a well-meaning Friend, fellow seminary student, as he told me point blank, no, I do not believe women are supposed to be senior pastors. I've had to say no to opportunities for education or training or ministry involvement. Can't go to those conferences for all the pastors because I'm the primary caregiver to my kids. And these opportunities all assume I'm a dude with a wife at home to take care of them. And yet, I would change nothing about my gender, my motherhood. They are gifts to me, and I believe that the kind of pastor God has called me to be is a woman and a mother. But that is a good thing. It is how I am made. Amen. Despite the social challenges it brings. So what healing does John Jesus bring for someone like John Nade? Being cured of his disability is not something he is seeking or believes he needs from God. While John acknowledges others living with disability might be longing for cure and they are entitled to feel that way, John personally is not. Rather, the healing John needs is the same healing that the person marginalized for their gender, their ethnicity, their socioeconomic status, their age, their employment history, their level of education, their sexual orientation, their political affiliation, their religion, or any other condition is in need of. Amen? They need their society to stop calling them unclean. They need to be stopped being called unclean. They need to be welcomed as human beings with dignity and have their unique identities affirmed. And this is the healing I believe Jesus came to bring. Amen? So before we end and move into a time of reflection, I've invited our own Connie Barker to share some of her story about what, we, what it has meant to live as a woman, a queer woman with disability, Go ahead and come on up. I have said throughout our uh, series, we were gonna, I was in creating an invitation for us to share some vulnerability stories. So she's gonna be vulnerable with us today, and I invite you to receive it with love. Thanks, Connie. Uh, yeah. Well, um, the first time I uh, spoke in this. Uh, congregation. I don't know if you remember, it happened to be on the very Sunday when the night before had been the Pulse Massacre. <laughs> and now I'm speaking two days after <laughs> another such thing. And that sort of makes you kind of think like, gee, what's going to happen the next time you know, <laughs> that I volunteer to do this? And that's just sort of my segue into saying that vulnerability sometimes makes us do strange things and have strange thoughts and come up with strange solutions that aren't solutions at all. Um, 
I'm going to tell you about something that Jan and I have done that makes us somewhat vulnerable and why we go on doing it. That's what this story is basically about. And it's going to sound trivial at first, but I hope by the end you'll understand why it's not trivial to us. The trivial sounding thing is this. The year is 2019. Donald Trump has been president since 2016, and we still have massive numbers of Hillary for president signs on our house, okay? They're in the windows. People can see them from the streets. And uh, more often than you might think, in a place like Marin County in the Bay Area, we do have people come by, often school kids coming home from the parochial school down the block who will chant, Trump, 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 and Hillary lost. And every once in a while, we get a little something like that from an adult, too. We had a plumber in. Uh, just a few weeks ago, who I overheard saying to the landlord, gee, I can't, um, you know, I just can't deal with the fact that I'm having to work on a house that's got these Hillary signs. Ew. You know? Those are trivial things, but when things like what happened a couple days ago happened, I get some of these strange thoughts. I wonder what internet chat rooms some of those kids may be going to. And, you know, I think about the fact that Maybe they, you know, when they got a little older, might buy a gun or something like that. And at moments like that, I feel like going to Jan and saying, Jan, you know, maybe we, you know, it's been long enough. Maybe we just take these signs down. Why are we adding this little extra, you know, worry to our life um, by having them there? And those are the moments when Jan turns to me and says, oh, Con, I've been with this woman for 20 years. I know better than to really push it through an Ocon if I don't have to. That is just good marital hygiene for anyone who does not know. Um, but the reason that she says that to me is she knows that I know the story behind why she loves Bill and Hillary Clinton so much. Those are her signs, not mine. When my signs were up there last year, they said Bernie. We had a disagreement about that. Um, but it, it goes back to something that has to do with our shared disability. This is a picture of Jan, and she's wearing a full half respirator mask. Can, I, you, can you see that okay? Uh, the disability that we share um, is chemical and environmental sensitivities. And there was a time for both of us when the price of going out in public anywhere was, re was wearing one of those masks. And as I'm sure you can imagine, being publicly seen in that can make you feel rather vulnerable on a number of counts. First of all, it's almost impossible to be understood while you're talking through one of those things. <laughs> you know, that's a big thing altogether. Um, and people will stare or avert their eyes and not want to be next to you. Kids will point, mommy, mommy, shush, you know, it's not nice to point. So I, you go through that, and frankly, ever since 9-11, if you wear one of those things in the airport, people will be calling the TSA people over. <laughs> it gets really, really weird. So you can understand why it was maybe a very big thing to Jan that in the year 1992, when she was first having to wear one of those things in public and decided to go to a Clinton for President rally, and she was behind one of those rope lines that Bill Clinton was absolutely famous for wanting to wade into to shake hands with people, he came right over to her and grabbed her hands. Do you wear that because you have a, a health problems that you need that to breathe? 
do you have bad allergies? You know, I have bad allergies too. We're going to have to do something to help people like you. We're going to do something about this air pollution. We're going to do something to make it easier for, for insurances to pay for this. We're going to help you. Oh, my goodness. Think about that in terms of the story that we just read with Jesus being willing to touch the leper. You know, um, from that moment on, Jan was a huge fan of Bill Clinton, and once she got to know about Hillary's feminism, was an over-the-top fan of Hillary. It was one of those moments of kindness, of affirmation, of, you know, I mean, when someone who turns out to, to become the president of the United States comes over and talks to you personally and is willing to touch you and engage with you and listen to what you're saying through the mask, you feel different about it. That whole thing is who the Clintons are to her, and one reason why those signs are never coming down. And she knows that I know it. Oh, Con. <sighs> but there's another reason that the signs don't come down that has to do with my own vulnerability that I want to tell you about, too. Um, there's a, and somewhere I, I have the exact words here because I wanted to get them right. There's a famous lesbian feminist poem from the 1970s called A Woman is Talking to Death by a woman named Judy Gran that was very central in, in my life and, and me coming to um, an understanding of what some of these intersectional oppressions meant. This is one of the quotes from it um, that just, when I first encountered this, it was like, wow, someone is finally naming what I've felt about myself and have never been able to say. That same week, I looked into the mirror, and nobody was there to testify. How clear. An unemployed queer woman makes no witness at all. Nobody all was there for those two questions. What does she do, and who is she married to? I lived at that intersection for so long, unemployed because of my disability, you know, not married, I'm queer, and felt that kind of social death. But it's 40 years later now, and I would like to point out that I am in fact married, <laughs> and that I am in fact working, and that the reason behind this is two very powerful movements that have happened in this country, one for LGBT rights, one for disability rights. And the way that that happens is that people leave the signs up, is that people persevere when people don't agree with what they're doing. But I also want you to know this. On the day in 2004, when Jan and I got married the first time, do you remember 2004? Do you remember the guy who's now our governor, Gavin Newsom, decided to throw open San Francisco's City Hall? He decided that his answer to the fact that George Bush was saying we should have a constitutional amendment banning same-sex marriage was to say, okay, I will see your constitutional amendment and I will raise you one city <laughs> willing to collectively do civil disobedience because every one of those marriages was in fact illegal. And we were in these lines that went around the outside of City Hall. The gay man's chorus was, you know, singing over here. The haters were over there with their God does this to fag signs, but people were blowing them kisses because the hate could not get through the love. 
It was just amazing. But in the midst of all that, as we stood in line and waited, I asked Jan to take off her mask while waiting in that line. Why did I do that? We had come without plans, you know, on, you know, without time to prepare. We didn't know he was going to do this. And I knew from many years of doing environmental health activism with her that those masks draw the cameras. <laughs> those make great visuals. The person that you want to have talk, you put them next to the person with the biggest mask, the biggest oxygen tank, the hottest looking wheelchair, and that's the person who will get the interview every time. So I knew when I saw the cameras, and I knew that if the cameras panned past her with that mask, every woman in my woman's Bible study would recognize us and know that we were there, and that's what we were doing. And I just, Jan, Jan, please, could you just, could we just not wear the, the mask? I do, I do not want to come out to my Bible study partners this way. Oh, Con. <laughs> but she took it off and got sick, but she took it off and we got married. And that's the truth of how these, or my truth, of how these vulnerability things and standing up for your rights and the rights of others often work. <sighs> nothing that Bill Clinton did later, nothing that we learned about Monica, nobody that, you know, Hillary Clinton was later seen to have taken money for could penetrate what Jan felt about having been given that gift. And she loved me enough to take the mask off when she, <laughs> when she didn't have to, but she did. And I took the step of getting married, you know, despite my misgivings as a Christian, didn't quite have, you know, the strength to stand up for what I really believed then in the way that I wish I had since. But I did what I could at the time. And sometimes that has to be enough. And I'll just close with some words uh, by my friend Marcia Stevens, um, who is going to come here and sing this during Pride Month this year, which I'm really, really happy about it. She talks in a, in a, in a song she wrote about, in answer to the people who asked her why she was so willing, finally, to be out of the closet. You know, why, when she could have stayed in the closet and made a lot of money, you know, how did she find the strength to go on she wrote a song called I Will Not Behave Like Prey, part of which goes like this. When the enemy is upon me, I will not behave like prey. I will not run into closets or choose night instead of day. I will turn and face the danger while a friend unseen stands by because the power of truth within me is greater than the lie. And I just want to say that whatever lies we're up against, the greatest comfort to me is in knowing and really believing that that power and truth within me is always greater, and it may take me a while to engage with it and get it right. <laughs> but we can all always do that. And that's my vulnerability story. Thank you so much, Connie. That's a gift to us. You are a gift to us, and your willingness to share your story is a gift to us. Rachel Naomi Remen is a physician and an author 
and a deeply spiritual woman from the Jewish tradition, and someone who's lived most of her life with Crohn's disease, as both a physician and a patient with a lifelong chronic illness, Remen has learned a lot about the limits of science and medicine and our need for healing. I'm just going to read two quotes from her. We thought we could cure everything, but it turns out we can only cure a small amount of human suffering. The rest of it needs to be healed, and that's different. For her, the capacity to heal is often rooted in our own woundedness, she says wounding and healing are not opposites. They're part of the same thing. It is actually our wounds that enable us to be compassionate with the wounds of others. It's our limitations that make us kind to the limitations of other people. It's our own loneliness that helps us find other people or even know they're alone with an illness. She says, I think I have served people perfectly with parts of myself I used to be ashamed of. Connie, I'm grateful for the ways that I have seen you live out of your vulnerabilities in ways that have brought healing to folks in our community. And you're even doing that today, so thank you. I think in both the medical and spiritual communities, doing healing work can often be a way to resist our vulnerability right? It's often just this way to fight our frailty, but when we do this, we generally fail to acknowledge the limits of our capacity to cure, because even the miraculous doesn't liberate us from human vulnerability. This is the truth. Every person that Jesus, the gospel say, laid hands on and miraculously cured, what happened to every one of them? They got sick, they got injured, they got old, they died. Every single person Jesus healed also died, right? After miracle, there is still human frailty, there is still weakness, there is still vulnerability. Perhaps God may choose to reveal God's self for reasons beyond our own understanding through signs and wonders like lesions disappearing from skin or like, uh, Lungs being restored in a young woman, but those signs and wonders are not an end to vulnerability. There is still pain and loss and scars that remain because the call to healing isn't a call away from vulnerability. It's a call into it. The call isn't a call away from vulnerability. It's a call into it. It's a call to acknowledge where there is loss, where there is hurt, where there is pain, and participate in caring for it as long as the pain requires. It's a call to allow our own wounds to be places from which we can connect and heal others. And this, I believe, is what Jesus brought us into. His signs and wonders point to a deeper truth that we are called to see beyond what is now and work towards what could be, a world where we find in one another and in the divine, belonging, meaning, beauty, and wholeness. A world where we're not defined by our wounds, but a world in which all of us can be healers and all of us can be healed. Amen. <laughs>